I remember having a strange relationship with my family. It was filled with silence. In between the gaps of silence were huge waves of anger from my father, combated with fear within my mother. My siblings left home at the earliest chance they could, and I was always waiting for my moment to escape. That moment came when I was 16, but things weren't as I dreamt. I had just dropped out of school because I became pregnant by a man who was only a few years older. He didn't really behave like a man though. We had a shotgun wedding and he was really abusive and had relationships with other women despite our marriage. After five years of suffering, I took my two kids back to my parents. I had met God during that time and my relationship with him felt like a double-edged sword. I was comforted by Jesus, yet felt so ashamed for leaving my husband, especially as I had met a man at my church. We got married and settled our family into a new church where I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I remember falling to the floor at the power of God's presence. He reminded me of a memory when I was two years old and faced rejection from and hatred towards my father. Over the following months, God highlighted how I was judgmental towards my mother for being weak and enraged towards my ex-husband for the abuse. I was tangled by the sticky black tar of my sin and the sin of others towards me. God's forgiveness was the only thing that could break through it because he is just and has the power to transform our hearts towards those who have sinned against us. Hi everybody, it is so good to be talking with you today. If you're new to Emmanuel, my name is Joel and uh, we are looking today at the subject of forgiveness, the, the, the freeing, liberating power of knowing that you are forgiven. We're in the book of Exodus, which describes the story of God showing up, uh, intervening in the the, the tough circumstances his, his chosen people are in. Um, his his uh, special people, the Israelites, were living in slavery under the tyranny of the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh, and uh, God breaks in, God intervenes in their situation to set them free. We looked uh, at the build-up to this, and today we're looking at the climax of this This story where God transforms their situation and what we see here is a nation effectively in meltdown because when God takes on their slavery he takes on their slavers he takes on the Egyptians and the way he does it is he goes for their religion every culture is really an expression of its religion what it takes most seriously what it worships what it believes in the heart which explains why uh, what we call the 10 plagues of Egypt are so peculiar. There's a range of really weird things that God seems to arbitrarily do. Like there's a plague of frogs and a plague of flies. And it starts to seem like God is just kind of randomly, you know, picking odd things that occur to him that day. You know, why not a you know, plague of piglets or jam or pastry you know wall-to-wall pastry everywhere no no there's actually a reason for each one each one corresponds to an Egyptian deity a god that is worshipped that they've built their society 
upon because Egyptians, like everybody, including you and me, build their lives, their families, their whole societies on things that they worship, the things that they take very seriously at a heart belief kind of level. And God kind of wipes the floor publicly with each of these. And then it culminates in the 10th and most serious plague where God threatens and then has to carry out the threat to take out the firstborn son of every family. And this is something that affects all of Egypt, but it even would have affected the lives of the Israelites themselves. And we're going to discover how God rescues them as we read this passage together. We're looking at Exodus chapter 11, the first bit, and then a bit from chapter 12. Let's read it together. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Then Moses called out all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves, according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door, and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Hi, everybody. We, we um, looked a couple of weeks ago at how the hero of Israel's redemption was God himself. We don't get to be the heroes of our own salvation, of our own rescue. We, we like to take that position naturally. We want to be the hero of our story. In, in this part of the story, we discover that not only were the Israelites not the heroes of their own rescue, but they weren't really just the victims either they weren't just the victims in the story that that needed to be rescued that that's that's half true certainly they were victims they were living as slaves in Egypt but the story of of forgiveness and salvation is that we don't just get rescued from a victim position but we get God's help forgiving us (laughs) when we are the perpetrators as well of the evil that has overcome us. We ourselves are complicit. We are responsible. And even these people, the the Israelites, who were God's special people, they were children of Abraham. They, They were supposedly the privileged covenant people of God. Even they have to be dealt with. Even they have wickedness in their own hearts that God has to deal with in order for them to be in right relationship with him. In that respect, they were 
in the same place as their oppressors. The, the guilty ones were not just the oppressors, the Egyptians, but the apparently oppressed. Now, we, we generally like to or find it very easy to divide the world up, to in, up into oppressed and oppressor. And if we can, we like to categorise ourselves with the oppressed. If, if there's any way in which we can see ourselves as amongst the oppressed, then we feel better about it because then we're not to blame. We're not part of the problem. The Bible simply doesn't allow us that because the Bible ultimately lays the blame, the responsibility at all of our door. At each one of us, there is some complicity. There's some responsibility because... For example, what we find with these Israelites later on in the Bible is that they themselves had given themselves in worship in their hearts to the gods of Egypt. They were worshipping the gods of Egypt just as much as the Egyptians were. They, they joined forces with their oppressors in that respect. And then when you go through the story in, in the Bible of what happened after they got rescued, you see stuff in their, their behaviour, in their disposition of the heart that you realise is wicked. You realise that they have a tendency to distrust God, to treat God with contempt, to grumble against him, to speak against their leader Moses constantly. There's something about them that you realise there's something dark and sinister within their very heart. And so it seems that even the oppressed have got something that, that needs to be dealt with. There's a, there's a deep problem in their own hearts in terms of the relationship to the God of their salvation. And if that's the case for them, then surely we need to also see the possibility of that ourselves. And what I want to do in the time we have left is look at the way that God dealt with this problem. Because it involved sacrifice. It involved blood. It involved a lamb in every case. And I want to look first at the necessity of the blood. Second, I want to look at the authority of the blood. And then I want to look finally at the affirming power of the blood. Let's start with the necessity of the blood. What, what needs to happen is for guilt to be dealt with in the heart of, of every Israelite in the story. There's genuine guilt they carry inwardly, in their hearts towards God. Just like, as the Bible says, all human beings do. And this is, a, this is a, a big thing for us to cope with because generally in 21st century culture like ours, we tend to see guilt feelings as the, the big enemy. Anything we can do to suppress guilt feelings, we will do. We will find a way inwardly and even in conversation. If you notice that one of our, our kind of go-to phrases in conversation, not that there's anything wrong with that, when we bring up any issue, any moral issue, any potentially moral issue, any semi-moral issue, not that there's anything wrong with that. We, we want to quickly kind of avoid the possibility that someone in the conversation might walk away feeling a bit guilty because the idea of feeling guilty is unacceptable, intolerable. We don't want to feel guilty. We see guilt feelings as a problem. Whereas it's possible, surely, if we step back, that it might be rather that the guilt feelings are the signs of something underneath that is even more serious. If you have hunger feelings, the hunger feelings can feel like an enemy. You say, I, I hate feeling hungry. And you can perhaps try and suppress your hunger feelings if you're trying to go on a diet or if you're trying to get some self-control with regard to your carbs. You know, you just kind of, oh, I'm just going to deal with my hunger feelings. 
that's good, well done, good for you, well done for dealing with the feelings. Problem is that the, you can't just forever ignore hunger feelings because in the end, they represent something that's more serious called hunger. And hunger, when it gets serious, it can turn to starvation, which can turn to something more serious called death. There's such a thing as the, the feelings being a signpost of something more serious underneath. And the Bible suggests that guilt feelings are an outward expression of something objective, something real under the surface that does need to be dealt with. It's not called guilt feelings, it's called guilt, real guilt. We don't really welcome the concept into polite discussion, but the Bible seems to insist on it as a real problem. It perhaps in a way that would surprise us in its gentleness, it's not always in a kind of castigating, finger-wagging way, bringing back the issue of this deep down problem. The way we might deal with it is by saying, well, you know, God knows me uh, and uh, God knows my heart. Deep down, you know, I do bad things, I say bad things, I think bad things, but deep down, deep down in my heart, who I really am, God knows I'm a, I'm a nice guy. Deep down, in a, in a really deep place, deep down, who I really am is a nice person. <laughs> Jesus said the opposite. Jesus said, no, it's from the deepest place. It's from the heart. It's from the most inmost place that comes every kind of evil. So the, the Bible's diagnosis is the opposite of the way we see it. We see the guilt feelings as something kind of sort of annoying on the surface of life that needs to be rejected because deep down we're okay. The Bible says no, the, deep, the, the guilt feelings represent something that's even more sinister beneath that must be dealt with. So for us to kind of just ignore them is dangerous. There's a, a Swiss uh, theologian called Karl Barth who... who described it, to, to illustrate this, he described somebody riding across uh, Lake Constance, uh, I think in, in Switzerland, uh, and, and at night time, without realising that they were riding across the lake. It was iced over in the winter, and they're just riding their horse across it, not knowing that they're on a lake, because it's so dark. And they get to the other side, and somebody tells them, the only way you got here is if you rode across a lake. And this person that rides their horse is overcome with with terror at the prospect and just you know falls off their horses falls like just terrified at what they've what they've survived and he makes the point Karl Barth that that's the human condition we don't realize what we are through our whole life in danger of because of the very real issue that we can just ignore that our guilt feelings are only a tiny manifestation of the real thing called guilt that is a genuine barrier between us and God. Whatever we feel like, it's got to be dealt with. And even in the hearts of his people, it has to be dealt with. You might think, well, what is God's problem? You know, what is God's problem with, with us? You know, why, why would he take this guilt thing so seriously? I thought God was nice. I thought God forgave people. Isn't that his job? You know, he's the forgiving God, isn't he? Isn't he? Your Bible says he's nice. Well, yeah, maybe God is nicer than you could even possibly imagine. But that doesn't mean that guilt and sin aren't also more serious and sinister than you could imagine. I mean, in reality, we know a bit about this, don't we? Have you ever had to forgive someone? Some of you, you've, you've known this in your own life, I dare say. You've, you've, you've perhaps had to really forgive someone for something that has deeply hurt you, that has cost you. And you'll know the pain of that. To just forgive someone is a nonsense. There's no such thing as just forgiving somebody. Oh, just forgive them. It can't be trivialised. Not real forgiveness. 
because it will take sometimes a whole season. It might take days, weeks, months, might even take years of disciplining yourself to, to not speak against them, not take opportunities of revenge, to, to choose in your heart to think better of them, maybe even to pray for them. That might be a battle. It might cause you anguish. It might cause you all kinds of internal trouble that you know it's the right thing to do and you know you want to do it in your heart of hearts because you know forgiveness is right, but it's painful. And if, friends, if we know something of the pain of forgiveness, imagine that multiplied to a cosmic level. Imagine a God who wants to forgive his beloved people, a people, a nation. But the level of offence, the level of pain that has been caused is beyond anything we can potentially stomach. And God has to find a way if he's going to do it. And the way he's found throughout the scriptures involves blood. It's that serious. We might recoil, we might think, that's disgusting, that's barbaric, that's, that's pagan, that's evil, that's blood? Well, can I just ask you to take your 21st century glasses off for a moment? Imagine that your culture is not the only authority on what's good or what's disgusting or what's barbaric. Step back, be humble, consider the possibility that there's wisdom in this. If sacrifice seems ugly to us, that is a hint. It's because what sacrifice solves is even uglier. The problem of guilt requires a drastic solution. And so a lamb is slain in the household of every Israelite, or anyone that chooses to follow the God of the Israelites, a lamb was taken and blood was placed on the doorway and the angel of death did not take the firstborn son of every household. It's dramatic, I know. It's dark, I know. But it was necessary. There is a necessity for sacrifice. And of course, the Bible keeps telling this story again and again in different ways. Blood is shed, sacrificial systems, priesthood set up, tabernacles set up, all kinds of rituals, all kinds of liturgy to ensure that sacrifice is done because the problem of guilt is real, the problem of sin is real. You know it really, don't you? Something's got to be done about the guilt. And in the end, each one of these animals turns out to be only a sign of the real solution. Because how could a lamb's blood really work in the heart of God? No, this was all pointing to something even greater. There came a day when Jesus sat down to his last Passover meal with his dear friends, the 12, the disciples. And it describes this in, in the Bible. For example, in Luke 22, Jesus is sitting down with them. And, and you can see, you think, where, where's the lamb at the table? It talks about bread, it talks about wine. There's no mention of a lamb because the lamb was at the table with them. The lamb was Jesus himself. As, as uh, his relative, John the Baptist, pointed at him early in John's gospel, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the lamb. And it was actually at the time of the Passover, what we'd call Good Friday in our religious calendar, when Jesus was sacrificed Blood was spilled at that very time when lambs would have been sacrificed. This is a phenomenal uh, 
story God's been telling, was telling for hundreds of years before the cross of Jesus Christ came as the authority. It's fascinating to me that even Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator, turned to the crowd and said, I find no fault in him. This Jesus is faultless, like the lamb. If you read this story in Exodus 11 and 12 and read the whole story in your own time, you'll see it as special stipulations. The lamb had to be faultless, without blemish. Jesus was faultless. Jesus was sinless. Jesus is the only one in history to live a life of pure devotion to the Father. And it was he who went to sacrifice. His blood was shed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. To bring us peace, he was punished. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the real Passover. And it means that there's also authority. Let me just move on and quickly touch on this. The authority of the blood of Jesus. What people tend to do is, is take what I'm saying seriously and believe on it and say, okay, I believe that Jesus died for my sin. And maybe the feeling of being forgiven overwhelms them at the point where they become a Christian. I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm free. And it's extraordinary. The feeling is wonderful. But the feeling can wax and wane. The feelings can come and go. And then we can make the mistake of yielding to the authority of our feelings. I don't feel very forgiven at the moment. And maybe we don't feel forgiven because of particular things we've done. Maybe there are things that we feel a special shame about from the past. Or even things we've done today. And we think, I can't call myself a Christian. This is really, I'm such a hypocrite. What a, how can I believe that I'm forgiven when I know what I'm really like? And so what happens is the authority gets transferred away from the blood to what we feel like. We trust in the authority of whether we feel forgiven. But here's the thing, when the angel of death came through Egypt and looked to see if people's first son should be killed or spared, the angel did not look at the feelings of the people within the house. The angel did not look at how well they'd even done that week. The angel looked at nothing except the blood. Nothing else matters. The only thing that matters is, is the blood over this house. Friends, if the blood of Jesus is over your life, it has authority. Really, we've no business saying, well, I just feel so guilty. I feel so unforgiven. I've no business yielding to the authority of those feelings, except if I want to say, and your blood, Jesus, I don't feel it, so it has no authority. Be careful. <laughs> Who are you trusting in the end? What has authority? Your sense of being forgiven or the authority of the blood of Jesus? Let it speak. Let it have authority. Let it speak with final, complete forgiveness over your life. And let your feelings catch up with the reality. It's good to come back to feeling forgiven, but sometimes we almost have to take ourselves in hand. We have to decide. We have to rationalise it in a sense. We have to persuade ourselves no, I know this is true. It doesn't always feel, I feel more accused than I feel forgiven sometimes. And friends, I know what this is like. I know what it's like daily. I so often yield to other thoughts, other voices, other authorities. You're not forgiven. How dare you talk about yourself as being forgiven and righteous? You know what you are. You know what you've done. You know what you've done even today. 
So I have to come back and say, no, what do I know? I know that there's blood that speaks with more authority. There's blood that speaks a better word. I must let the authority of Jesus overcome my nagging sense of failure. And third and finally, the affirming power of the blood of Jesus. You may have noticed this fantastic part of the story where it says that Moses was held in high esteem even by the people of Egypt. And it says in the same place, in verse 3 of chapter 11, the people were held in high esteem in the sight of Pharaoh's servant, in the sight of the people. It's fascinating that it even says, you know, not a dog will bark at them when they leave Egypt. There was something about these people that, that held the rest of Egypt, the rest of the nation left behind, were in awe of them. There was a kind of status that they were allowed to enjoy as the people of God. But we know who these people were. And as I say, if you keep reading in your Bible, you realize there's very little about them that, that we would like. They're just like me and you. They're just grumbling sinners. They're just selfish people. But according to the Bible, they were held in high esteem. Why? Because they were so special? No, because they were with Moses. Moses was held in high esteem. And so his people carried his esteem. It, it fell on them as well. They received it. What does this mean? It means that none of us who love Jesus, who belong to Jesus, need to be poisoned with imposter syndrome. You know what I mean by imposter syndrome? Man, it's powerful, isn't it? Just sometimes we live under it. The sense that if anybody really knew what I was like, I know that she should be in church. I know that he's a Christian. I know that they deserve God's love because, well, they're good people. But if you knew what I was like, if you saw me at my worst, we imagine that God doesn't see us at our worst. And so that's how we're allowed in the door. You know, we, we're allowed in. You know, we're kind of in. We get, we get away from Egypt by the skin of our teeth. Everyone else, Moses gets in because he's impressive. All the other Israelites, they're impressive. We're imposters. We get in because God's not really looking. If he turned the rocks over, he'd see what we were really like. We'd be lucky to stay at all. And the truth, friends, is that because of the blood, because of who you belong to, Jesus, the better Moses, the one held in all highest esteem in heavenly places. If you belong to him, the same esteem, the same honour is showered upon you and you receive it by kindness from God, by grace from God, not because of anything you've earned. You can't earn it and you receive it by God's amazing grace. Jesus comes into heaven. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 2, saying, behold, I and the children you've given me. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Do you know that Jesus isn't ashamed of you? I know you are ashamed of yourself sometimes. I know I am sometimes. I know that I feel that that can be the final word, but it isn't. The final word belongs to the one who says there's no condemnation. Blood has been shed. Oh, yeah, if it was just about your best efforts, if it was just you putting your best foot forward, I really did well this week, so I'm in. Man, that would be shaky. <laughs> that would not be a good basis. That's not a good foundation. I tell you, there's something so much better. There's blood. There's the Lamb of God. So, friends, we have a firm basis for hope.
Let's pray. Help us, Father, to believe in the power, the authority of the blood. Help us to receive your forgiveness and learn to stand in the good of it daily. In Jesus' name, amen.